Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. Today, we are so excited and honored to have an incredible guest for you, Britt Frank. So we met Britt on a retreat in Spain, and we were just immediately drawn to her energy, her honesty, and her ability to distill down what it means to be human in a way that's approachable and fun, but also incredibly wise and backed by science. So I have no doubt that Britt is about to drop some major knowledge bombs on us. So I'm going to read Britt's bio and then we'll dive right in. Britt Frank is a licensed psychotherapist, trauma specialist, and author of The Science of Stuck. She received her BA from Duke University and her master's from the University of Kansas, where she later became an award-winning adjunct instructor. Britt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad to be here. We're so glad to have you here. You guys, Britt is like our bud, so we're going to do our, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna do our best to keep it profesh. Um, she's our, uh, she's yeah. our bud, but we're also fully obsessed with her work, yes. so it goes both ways. Yes. <laughs> the best kind of friend you can have. <laughs> so, so, so Britt, you are a psychotherapist and a trauma specialist, which is such an important line of work. And Amanda and I know that you do it so beautifully and with such integrity, but we know that you did not arrive here by accident. So let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about a little bit about your upbringing and how you got here? Because we know that there's a cult involved and a bunch of other juicy tidbits that could just give people some background on how you landed in, in this line of work and why it's important to you. Sure. On my website, I have, here's my professional background and here's my sorted personal background. And fortunately, both are quite relevant to my line of work. So I grew up in a very, very stereotypically Long Island Jewish family where everything looked normal. And I think that if your life does not look like what you think trauma should look like, you immediately discount it, you immediately disqualify it. We had enough money. We never had to worry about the power going out or food on the table. Nevertheless, there was quite a bit of, we'll just say suboptimal family dynamics that contributed to a whole lot of chaos and parent-child role distortion. There was early sexual trauma, just a lot of stuff, and nobody was speaking about feelings or how to tolerate or cope with or manage difficult things. It was, you can be, well, in my family, you had two feelings that were allowed. Anger, anger was fine. Like we could scream at each other all day long or happy. You could be angry or you can be happy. But all of the myriad of feelings that fall in between were not, don't speak, don't think, whatever, didn't exist. And so as people tend to do growing up with this giant volcano of stuff and no tools to manage it, in high school, I dove into partying and schools like simultaneously. I was able to sort of 
do both. And then in college, I discovered drugs and relationships. And so again, concurrently with my academic path, which was a respite from the chaos, I also got into methamphetamine and pills and sex and relationship addiction, just a whole hot mess of things. And then eventually after coming to the end of the line, which included a brief stint in a religious cult, an incredibly abusive domestic violence situation, I sort of came to the end of the road and went, okay, maybe I should make some change. Maybe the problem here is me. And that is not a universal. For some people, it actually is a systemic failure. But for me, it was, I need to deal with me. And should I choose not to deal with me, I am not going to survive the next chapter of this story. And that's not hyperbole. And so as it, you know, as the story goes, I woke up, dealt with my crap, was fortunate and privileged to have access to incredible resources. And then I became obnoxious in my passion about thinking about talking about this stuff. And so I didn't get into this field to be helpful, even though that's a really fun byproduct. I got into this field because I am so enamored with how quickly our lives get better when we know just a few pieces of information about the brain. And you are such an expert on the brain and how the brain works. And I can't wait to dive into that later. But is there a particular moment when you said, oh, this is what I want to do for my life's work? So actually early childhood, elementary school, I remember studying like the kids on the, I didn't have any friends and I was bullied horribly. So I would just sort of study the people on the playground and sort of, I didn't know what I was doing as a little anthropologist. Like looking at the clicks and studying the creatures and their natural habitat. And very early on, I, and I have severe mental illness on both sides of my family, as far as the eye can see. And I remember my grandmother, who legend has it, was taken by the men in white coats in the 60s and given shock therapy. She said to me, you'd be a really good psychologist. And I'm not a psychologist, I'm a psychotherapist, difference. But I sort of had a proclivity early on for studying shenanigans of humanity. And so again, I didn't get into this because I just wanted to help people. It was, I didn't know how to human. I didn't understand how to be a person. And I think that's always been baked into my personality. So I worked in advertising and media production. I waited tables in multiple cities for many years, but this has always sort of been my thing. Like, why do we do what we do? How do these bodies and these brains operate? And just like, what the hell? is going on. <laughs> Gosh, Brent, you and I, thank God we didn't meet each other in high school or college because <laughs> you two would have been trouble. Ooh, we would, we could have possibly dove off the cliff uh, together. <laughs> I often tell people that if I hadn't discovered this work, right, like I wouldn't have survived. Yeah. Uh, and that is, yeah, not an exaggeration. So, um, you know, there are a lot of people who work obviously as therapists, you made the decision to become an SEP or a somatic experiencing practitioner, uh, a training that I'm also a part of <laughs> right now. No accident. We all, we all want to heal our trauma when we go through some shit, but I'm curious for you, you know, why did you decide that you didn't want to quote unquote, just be a therapist, but you also wanted to bring in this uh, somatic experiencing lens. And perhaps you could tell people listening a little bit about what somatic experiencing is, why it's an important part of the work that you do, and how it kind of works together um, for you in practice. 
Sure. And the phrase somatic experiencing is a mouthful and I love the model, but we should call it something that speaks to what it is, which is yeah. simply your mind lives in a brain and that squishy meat thing lives in a body and your body is a biological organism that interacts with the environment. And with the wellness mental health world, we often think that our shit is in our minds. And often the things that we call disorders or diseases or character flaws are the result of our bodies doing what bodies were designed to do. Yeah. Your brain is braining. And if you don't know that brain's brain, then you're going to think you're crazy. And there's no such thing as a crazy person. So I came to somatic experiencing because that was the type of therapy I was very fortunate to stumble upon early in my own recovery. Mm -hmm. I had an SCP as a therapist and she pissed me off. I mean, I love her, but she's like, <laughs> I remember when she said, okay, Brett, where do you, in that lovely soft yeah. therapist voice that I do not possess, where do you feel that in your body? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, where do you feel that in your body? I'm like, bitch, I don't understand the assignment. I am a floating head. <laughs> this does not exist. I yeah. do not. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And so we, she really had to teach me how to live in. And it sounds so simple. And it, it is it's not easy, but it's simple. It's your body develops sensations you know feelings are called feelings because we actually feel them viscerally but if you don't know that you're just going to feel things like shame things like anxiety things like panic not know how to label it where it comes from how to work with it and you're just going to feel bonkers so why se because i was fortunate that that's what i found first and again just became enamored with the work and obnoxious about wanting to read it talk it do it all the time yeah. Oh my gosh. That resonates so much. I remember when I first stumbled into a yoga class in college when I was 18 and the teacher telling me to listen to my body. And I was like, I don't listen to my body. My body listens to me. And it was like, <laughs> that was the truth, you know, eating disorder, alcohol, drugs, like sleep deprivation, overwork, right? Like I was the master quote unquote, thought I was the master of my body. I didn't listen to my body. I told my body what to do and it better listen. Right. So I think for people out there who some of this talk can sound like esoteric, like listen to your body or where do you feel this in your body, right? If that feels hard, that's something to explore, right? Like that's such a juicy place to start exploring, even if it is something simple like, like you know, yoga or, or body work. For, for people that are maybe have no idea, like anything about like somatic work or body-based work, like where would you recommend they start to just kind of understand even like the base level of what it means to be in communication with your feelings that you feel? And again, I think the wellness world often does a disservice because we're so used to understanding, oh, listen to your body and where do you feel your feelings that we forget. And I forget there was a time where that was absolute just Huh? Garbage. Yep. <laughs> complete. I had this client who I loved, and he was so disconnected from his being. Forget about feelings and affect states and cognition and medica. Like this guy couldn't even register things like hot and cold. Like when mm, we were in the dead of wow. winter, he'd be in a t-shirt and shorts. And one of our early sessions, you know, we were struggling. I'm like, okay, dude, we're going outside into the snow, and you're gonna hold a pile of snow in your left hand, and we're just gonna stand here until you feel your your hand is cold. And he was so dissociated. It took a minute, but he stood there. He's like, oh, cold and wet. Okay. So if going inside just is off-putting or just doesn't 
feel like a safe place or a palatable place to start, start with external. What does it feel like to be cold in your left hand and not cold in your right hand? What does it feel like to have the sensation of wet in your left hand and dry in your right hand? And what does it feel like to stare outside? So when going inside is too much, let's just start with the external because we all can basically get there like the sensation of cold or hot doesn't tend to be a huge it can be but it doesn't tend to be a huge overwhelm and so or what we call orienting out instead of going in is a really nice on-ramp it's a really nice bridge to the deep inner work that we all say we want yeah I really want people to get this so for people listening if they feel any sense of disconnection from their their body their somatic self right even if it's not as dramatic as I can't feel hot. I can't feel cold. What does that do to a life? What does that do to someone trying to like live a life, do a job, be a, you know, be a success, whatever, all the things that we want to do live experience. What does not having like connection to your felt senses, how does it impact that? And I love that you're like, let's hit this hard. Let's just really drive this point home because I'm with you. Yeah. If And, you know, the word embodiment, again, sounds super woo and super esoteric, but it just means, you know, if you're disconnected from your body, from your felt sense, then likely you're going to either do amazing things and not enjoy it, mm-hmm. or you're going to not do amazing things and think it's your fault. Oh. And so we don't want to just do well. We want to be well while doing well. Like, what's the point of being a high achiever if you're so disconnected that you can't even enjoy it. That just sounds really unfortunate. And then if you're not achieving your capacity, and again, assuming that you have enough safety and resources and you're not currently, you know, being oppressed or in a war-torn country, if you're not achieving or maximizing your capacity or whatever, there are reasons. And embodiment practices aren't just about being blissed out in Zen. It's about being able to access more of yourself. When you can access more of yourself, you're free to enjoy your successes when you have them. And you have the space to maneuver if you're not where you want to be. So <sighs> it, I'm a big fan of do this work because it's good for you in all of the ways. That's yes. what people needed to hear. Cause not everyone's going to care unless they understand, well, why, what is it going to do for me? How's it going to help me like, you know, achieve my goal. So speaking of which you built a very successful practice from the ground up. Talk to us about the early days. What did your, you know, what did the early days look like? How did you get your business started? So I remember, because I have a master's in social work, and I remember everyone being horrified. Like, why would you go? And, and again, the the idea of what social work is and isn't is still ridiculous to me, how mysterious people, you know, people just said, are you just going to go take kids away from homes? And I'm like, okay, well, number one, no. And I heard that is said often enough that in social work curriculum, we are taught how to address that when people say, oh, that's what you do. It's like, no, one, that's an incredibly important role for those situations, but it's a bigger field than that. But I researched and found that a social work degree actually would allow me a broader range of options. So I could do private practice. I could work for an organization. I could run a hospital. I can work for a nonprofit versus if I was a counselor, I could only do this one line of thing, you know, this one narrow parameter kind of thing. And so I knew early on because I do have a working in the business world backgrounds, looking at the salaries compared to the projections of the need in the market, I'm like, this is bullshit. I No. And then I thought about, well, what do I pay my therapist? And she's incredibly worth every penny. 
Plus, I don't do people well with people. I love my friends and I love my clients, but I don't play well with others in the sandbox. So it was important to me early on to develop um, <laughs> an ecosystem where I could be in charge of all the things and not have to sit in meetings and not have to deal with. And I've done all of that. I've been there. Um, so private practice was always my, where I had my sights set because it aligned with my core values, which is don't people with people during the workday. <laughs> uh, Amanda and I both come from corporate as well, as you know, and there is it is so important to take those experiences, right? The things that you loved about them and also the things that you maybe didn't love so much, like peopling with people and use that to inform what you do next. So Kudos to you for make, deciding to go into private practice using that knowledge. Something that you just shared was about salary. And I know that a lot of service-based providers, whether you are a therapist, a coach, a solopreneur, a marketing consultant, struggle with how much to charge, right? Which is something that I love that you are incredibly confident about. How do you know your worth and stand your ground when people inevitably challenge it? And how do you even get to that number of knowing what your worth is? And again, not to get too down a, this rabbit hole, but I find that the difficulty of being a wellness practitioner and salary and what to charge and rate is more of a woman problem mm. than a man problem. I don't Absolutely. get I don't get a lot of pushback from men. They some of them don't like it and they're like, "Wow, I don't want to pay that." And it's like, "Okay, well then don't." But it's it's odd to me. Well, it's not odd to make sense that women were we were trained to devalue, to be nice, to be of service and that that was not worth a dollar amount. And the wellness world is really the only industry where this debate is being held. I would never go to my dentist, I would never go to my attorney or to my accountant and be like, "Well, I really need you to, you know, to give me a better rate because this is where I'm sitting. And I'm not saying that there aren't degrees to which we need to be of service. And that's why I write free content. And that's why I give free talks. You know, there are ways to make it accessible and available. But this idea as women that because we're being helpers and that's what we're supposed to do, we should charge as little as possible creates, not only does that create resentment and burnout, but it also creates less quality work. I am at my best when I am charging my worth. And so my clients get more information, better information, a better roadmap, a better blueprint fastest if I'm not pissed off and resentful at being there in the first place. So this charging what you're worth is not, again, not just this esoteric, be who you are and charge what you're worth. You're going to do better work and your clients are going to get better faster and everything will work better. And for people that don't want to pay you that rate, then they don't have to. That's the nice thing. There's 6 billion of us running around and not everyone is for everyone. It's so true. And, you know, I, I absolutely agree that that women, we tend to devalue ourselves, right? Like I look at, I look at my husband and I look at my fat, my male family members and my male friends and they charge whatever they want. And none of them have ever apologized for it. Right. And then I look at my, my female friends who come to me and they're like, I don't know, I don't feel comfortable raising my prices, but I know that I'm not getting paid enough. And it really is this interesting juxtaposition. 
So it is. And I think because we live in a world now that is largely online, this idea, when I started my practice, it was, well, what's the market value of what I do and what's the median and on the bell curve, where do I fall? And that's just not necessary anymore. I remember someone said to me, like, you're going to price yourself out of the market. I live in the Midwest. I don't live in New York or LA anymore. And it's like, yeah, but we live in a global society. So I'm really big on don't let the immediate numbers in your immediate market determine how you set your rates. Set your rates based on and your question, like, how did I come to the number? Well, first you look at, you know, your education and your credentials and you get a general idea of, okay, what are people charging? But then it becomes this game of what do I need to charge in order to be in integrity with my level of expertise, but also so I don't feel resentful. And often you're going to have to push yourself to a number that's not a comfortable one in order to get that Venn diagram crossover space. You don't want to go beyond what you're worth or what your expertise is, but you also don't want to charge so low that you don't want to do it. So it, it, it it's really, a, I use my felt sense and my embodiment to really feel into what do I need to charge in order to justify the trainings and the studying and the reading and all of the things I do to know what I now know. And what do I need to charge so I don't burn out so I can give the best quality work. And it's so personal. It is personal. And I, I love what you said about charging a number that prevents resentment so that you don't burn out. That was one of my biggest lessons of the last business that I that I had, which was a branding consulting agency that at the beginning, I was so excited to get clients, so excited to make my own money and build my business that I took on anyone, even people that I knew from the get-go were underpaying me. And it very quickly led to resentment and burnout. I would love to know from you, what other tools do you have to prevent your own burnout? Because I know that you have your own practice. You're an entrepreneur. You're an author. You're a speaker. You do a lot. Circus <laughs> performer. Circus performer. <laughs> Pianist. Goal, goal of five pull-ups this year. Working on those pull-up goals. Hashtag pull-up coming. I know. <laughs> so what, what else do you do, whether it's boundaries or practices or tools in your toolbox to prevent burnout besides setting prices that make you feel good? which is so important. So I am not a subscriber to this work-life balance mythology. So anything that we want, anything that we really want to go for is going to disrupt the balance of our life. And I, I accept that and I work with it. So when I was writing the book, I knew I was going to not be sleeping well and not be, you know, working 15 hour days, pulling my hair out, running around like, how do I do this? This sucks. You know, writing a book is fun and it's late, you know, it's a labor of love. Um, and so instead of trying to find balance, it's how can you build in some boundaries and how can you build in resting places while it's really intense. But I also knew as soon as the book was done that I was going to have some time where I could go to my circus gym and play with a new routine because you cannot ruminate and obsess and hang upside down and spin at the same time. It's a beautiful way to get centered because if you don't pay attention to what you're doing, you get hurt. Yay. Embodiment, mindfulness. Um, I go to Things like retreats in Spain with Yay. present company. I think the relationships outside what we do are really the key to preventing burnout. And because I don't work in a company with lots and lots of other people, I have a lot of social bandwidth at the end of my day because I haven't exhausted it 
you know, having little side conversations and having people interrupt me all day. I do my job, I focus. And then when I'm done, I get to just play and I'm really big on play. And people push back so hard on play being this frivolous waste of time. But like researchers across all of the disciplines agree that play is good for your bottom line. Play is good for your mental health. Play is good for your physical health. Doing play frees you up to be more effective in your productivity areas. So I am a huge advocate of play play hard. Oh, I love to hear that. I know it's something Amanda and I both do a lot of. The, the best thing that I did for myself in the past year was start taking ceramics lessons, which like as a total beginner, make I call my pieces wobby-sobby because they're always a little wobbly, but it, it can be a style if you choose. And, <laughs> and just this idea of doing something that, that you're not great at and it being okay because it's just play, right? Nothing rests on it. Amanda, I know that you painted something for the first time in a while earlier. This Yay, week. show and tell, so show and tell. We'll, we'll post it. We'll post it to Instagram, but I think play is so important and it's really refreshing to hear. Look at that art piece. It's and so it's colorful. Like, it's so you. Of course it of course is. It yeah. is. <laughs> um, but it's really refreshing to hear you as a professional advocate for play. Um, so, you know, Britt, at, at the heart of everything that you do that we just listed off, and I'm sure there's more things in the work, which we'll obviously ask you at the end of this, you are, we'll just call it like it is, you're a badass entrepreneur. So what is the most impactful lesson that you have learned so far in your entrepreneurial journey? Oh, that's such a good question. The most impactful lesson that I've learned in my entrepreneurial journey is it will be the hardest thing that you've ever done and it will be a thousand percent worth it. Amen. There it is. Well, I am so excited to start talking about your book, The Science of Stuck, which was Britt's debut book. And it is such a special book. Rebecca and I recommend it to all of our clients. Not only is it really uh, like fun and sort of uh, engaging to read and just your prose is just so like playful and thoughtful. I mean, even the way you speak, right? But it's it has this grounding in science, right? Which is so hard. Like I read a lot of dense books that other people are like, oh my God, I could never read that. Uh, but I love, I, I hate fluff. I really, I can't read a book that's just somebody yabbering on and on. I'm like, mm, great, but where's where's that data? Where, where's the evidence? So what's fabulous about this book, and yes, if you're listening, you should read it, is the way that you've really mixed sort of the playful prose, the anecdotes, the personal stories with like so much scientific data and research. So I'm curious. What was the inspiration? When did you decide this is the book and I'm the author of it? So I did not want to write a book of here is Brit's, you know, advice on how to live your best life because I hate those books too. I, I, I don't them. like people that position themselves as this is the way, this is my way, this is the only way, do it this way or your life's going to suck and the fear tactics. It's like I have amassed this incredible wealth of knowledge and resources, not just from the therapy world, but from therapy, from the business world, from spiritual world, from the hard sciences. And as I accumulated it all, I'm like, oh my God, I could do the most amazing show and tell. And so the science of stuck is really my synthesis of all of the things, you know, and it's not that I'm the expert on everything. It's I'm sharing the experts who did the research, who did the peer reviewed double blind studies out of wherever. And this is what they found and put it together in a way that makes our stuff make sense. 
I am a big advocate. I've read the books too. And I'm a big advocate of don't say in 80 words what you can say in five. Oh my and God. so there's yes, no, thank you. There's As no a slow merit. reader, blessings, <laughs> blessings from a slow reader. And making it, you know, I took the, poly, you know, Dr. Stephen Porges and his mm -hmm. polyvagal theory, which was transformative clinically, professionally, per, all of it. And I'm like, well, that one was a really hard one for me to, to digest. So I turned it into a cartoon playground because a swing set gets the same message across as anything else. And again, it's not to dumb down the work. It's to actually make the work accessible for people who, yes, exactly. I and have the polyvagal flip chart, right? Because it it's like, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. It is absolutely. Absolutely phenomenal. And again, I get why academics and researchers write the way they do, because that's what's expected in that field. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to pull in all of the things, amass this show and tell for the purpose of not quickly, magically changing everything, but for quickly, magically getting out of freeze and into go. So my book is not, here's how you get from stuck to Pinterest worthy, TikTok, you know, Insta fabulous life. It's get from stuck to go because once you get going, the momentum will take you there anyway. If we focus on the finish line, we're not going to get out of the starting gate. It's like, know where you want to go. Great. That's my goal. Put it on the shelf. Forget about it. And let's get moving. And there's science that explains why we don't. And I really wanted people to know what I know about that. So well, that's, that's the why. Everyone needs to read the book. And you mentioned Insta-Fabulous Lives. So <laughs> I'd be remiss to ask, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you live in the Midwest, you have a private practice, you're in Kansas. And now, and I know it's not like poof, right? But now you're this best-selling author, large Instagram following, big community. Like, how how did you do it? Tell the people. The people want to know how to do it. Well, I came, you know, I tell people I'm a New Yorker who lives in Kansas now on purpose mm -hmm. because part of my journey brought me through a fundamentalist religious cult for a while. And when I came out of that and I had moved away, I was living in California and then I was in Arizona and I'm like, my life fell apart. And it was, where do I want to go to dust myself off and pick up the pieces. And Kansas City is a phenomenal city. It's easy to live. The people are cool. It's easy to do what you want. So one of the reasons I was able to do what I do is because I moved to a city that didn't place a lot of demands on me in terms of the lifestyle and the cost of living. And it was easy to create social connections because that's a value here that was not a value where I have come from. And so there was that. So one, and again, not everyone has the same choice points. I'm child free by choice. And so not having little humans to raise that does oh, free yeah. up my choice. I don't have to worry about school districts. I don't have to worry about things like that. So that was the first piece. The second was once I decided I wanted to write a book, I very quickly discovered if you don't have a platform, no one wants to give you the time of day. And it was like, well, I'm not going to not write. I'm a writer. I've been a writer since I was bitty bitty. So if I can't write a book, because I don't have a platform, then I'm just going to start writing wherever I can. And that was Instagram. And so every day it wasn't like, how do I get more followers? Even though, of course, that's in the back of your mind. It was, what do I want to write about today? And so every day I just sort of put my brain you know, blobs out into the world. But doing that, because they're little low risk things that, you know, change daily, I could test out ideas and I could really find my my voice and figure out how do I want to say what I know? How do I want to aggregate the stuff and teach it? And then all of a sudden that became, I think people are pretty keen to fake and 
automated and robotic and I don't have a team. It's just me. I answer all the comments. I talk to everyone who talks to me. If you DM me, I'll DM you back unless you're creepy and weird, then I'd block you. Um, <laughs> and so I, I really try trying to get you uh, 5,000 followers for $25. <laughs> right. Or the, Hey, beautiful. Yeah. Hello, sweetheart. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> so that was sort of how I built it. I, again, I had people with huge followings share some of my stuff and you know that you, it's like building a, a fire you, you get the logs there and then you stoke and stoke and stoke and for me it was I just kept writing original content every day and meeting people and that became a big enough thing that I could then put together a pitch and a proposal it took me three years and over a hundred rejections to get a lit agent but then once I got a lit agent she sold the book and that became a thing. And it's, it's, an, it's an at bat thing. It's, you just got to keep pushing and getting used to hearing no, you know, rejections, they hurt, but you know, you file them away and then you keep going. And after the first 25 rejections, you sort of just like, okay, next. Okay. Next. Yeah. Okay. Next. Yeah. That gave me chills. And that's what people need to know. Three years, a hundred yes. rejections guys. We've had so many fabulous people on the show already, and no one was like, oh, it was easy. <laughs> it just happened, right? <laughs> yeah. We haven't heard that. I mean, there are people for whom that is true, right? There's like the whole like nepotism in Hollywood thing where it's like, you know, there are people for whom something happened automatically, but for 99% of the overnight successes, it was three years, 100 rejection letters, and then boom, overnight success, right? So highlight that for, for, for everyone out there thinking, oh, I've been at it for six months and nobody's magically discovered me. <laughs> it's so true. And then while I was pitching and while I was writing, not reading anything, because you will very quickly get discouraged if you are trying to create and consume at the same time, like consume voraciously and then don't consume for a while, digest what you've consumed and then go create. But this is for me. I could not simultaneously be trying to birth an idea while taking in all of the amazing ideas. So my exercise for people who are doing that is go to a bookstore, look to your right and you'll see a hundred things more fabulous than yours. Look to your left and you'll see a hundred things way worse than yours. And then immediately discount because neither side matters. Stay in your lane and do your thing. Ooh, love that. I mean, we talk a lot with our clients about opinion shopping and it's, this almost sounds like opinion shopping for authors, right? That you can ask and look around and get advice and opinions and read hundreds of books that are better than yours, hundreds of books that are worse than yours. But at the end of the day, no one is going to do it exactly like you are. No one has your exact voice, your exact experience, your exact point of view. So put what you want out into the world, right? I love what you said about testing and learning. You did it on Instagram, but putting yourself out there in, in little pieces, we call it micro dosing risk to start to quickly gather data about what works and also what doesn't work. Yes. Right? Yes. I love that so much. And I love the micro dosing risk because that is in alignment with somatic principles. It's in alignment with the neuroscience of how our brains do the thing. If you're micro dosing risk, you're going to be able to do it. When I would put out an Instagram post that just sort of went thud there, nothing happens. Nothing bad happens. Like I'm, I'm not injured. Everything <gasps> is fine. Every, everybody what? is fine. You know, my ego's wounded, but that's not an actual injury. That's fine. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. And then you do it again. And you, if you're paying attention to the patterns, you're going to be able to actually figure out not just what works, but what do you actually like talking about? Because I started by just throwing spaghetti at the wall by talking about 
everything. And I figured out very quickly, I don't like talking about that. And I don't like talking about that, but I really love talking about this. And here's how I want. And I was so crestfallen when I saw how many self-help books there were in the world. And my agent was like, no, the fact that there are these books is a good sign. It means there's a demand. Be worried if no one has come up with something like your idea, because that means no one wants to read it. So I very quickly learned, don't get discouraged by how much stuff, like Rebecca said, Am I back? You're back. You're back. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Dude, lame. Anyway, no one says what you say the way you say it, and people need to hear it a thousand different ways before it sinks in. Beautiful. Okay. Beautiful. Go ahead, Amanda. <laughs> now that we're back. Um, so the nervous system, we're all big nervous system nerds here. We talk about the nervous system on Instagram with our clients. And, you know, it's crazy to me, like how little we are taught about the thing that runs everything, right? It's like, it is in charge. Like we learn very little about our bodies. We learn very little about our brains, right? But we learn nothing about the nervous system until like, perhaps we go to therapy after all the things have already happened to us. So knowing that most of our audience are folks who work in leadership roles, high stress, what are like a couple of ways that you recommend like working with the nervous system to get out of like, you know, I feel like everyone these days is in low level fight or flight mode, like most of the time. So what are, what are the tools that you recommend for folks to kind of ooh, deregulate? So I love that the business world is now understanding that the mental health aspect is not an optional thing to be informed about. It's not an outlier. It's the norm. But to answer your question, I think that part of the reason that we're seeing such nervous system shenaniganery, dysregulation, is because we've swung so far to this, you know, honor your feelings, be in your feelings. And suddenly everyone in the workspace is also trauma dumping and emotion vomiting. And from a neuroscience perspective, it's not helpful to do that, nor is it productive to do that. And I really feel for leaders and managers because they're being told you need to care about your people. Okay, how are y'all feeling? And then everyone is getting dysregulated by talking about their high-level traumas. And so it's important to know you don't need to be a therapist at work. All you need to do is validate that bad things are happening, validate that the feelings exist without getting into the nitty-gritty of what they are, and then as a leader or a manager, being a broker of resources. Like, don't worry about getting into your team's personal stuff, but be able to know, hey, your nervous system is a thing. Clearly, there's some big feelings over there. Here's where you go to help it. Here's Here's where you go to take care of it. I think leaders and managers need to be empowered to be brokers of resources, not the source of the information because they have a job to do. You can't do your job and my job at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I literally just posted about this today that if you're experiencing burnout, you should go to your boss when you're at like a six or a seven and say, hey, I'm starting to feel burnt out and I could use like this accommodation or that accommodation and still, instead of waiting until you're like a pile of tears on the floor and you're like, ah, right? Because like bosses like don't necessarily have the tools to deal with that, nor do they need to have those tools. So it's like, Come when you're at a six and you can still articulate that you're like, I'm starting to not do well versus like puddle on floor status. Um, one of the favorite things that you have in science of stuff that I talk to all my clients about are your thoughts on procrastination. People are always calling themselves procrastinators, beating themselves up for procrastination. So please tell the people about procrastination. And also, uh, if you could weave in the concept of the shadow snack, that would be great. <laughs> I love you. So some people who are not in our 
wellness arena get really pissy when I say that procrastination is not a character flaw, nor is it a sign of laziness. They get all huffy. Are you saying it's okay? And you're just coddling? No, I'm not saying it's okay, nor am I saying it should be allowed. I'm saying here's the explanation. If you do not properly frame the problem, you're not going to solve it. And procrastination is not a mind problem. Procrastination is a nervous system problem. Procrastination should be called a fear response because that's what it is. The word procrastination has gotten so loaded with shame and self-blame that there's no way to intervene on it. If you're just a procrastinator, okay, you suck and seen. But if my nervous system is having a fear response, I don't know why, because my brain is braining. It just is. You don't need to know why. Then it's not, why do I suck? Then it's, what are my choices? What are my, my I call, I love microdosing risk. I call these micro yeses. If you're in a fear response, AKA procrastinating, where are your micro yeses will get you out of that physiological state a lot faster than what's wrong with me. I don't understand why I'm doing this. Like, this is such a huge problem. It's like, yeah, it's a huge problem. You don't need to know why you're doing it. You do need to know procrastination is a fear response. It is physiological, not mental. And using micro yeses into action will break that loop. So that's important. Now, second part of your question, the concept of the shadow snack. So I really love depth psychology and this idea of the shadow, but simply put, all shadow content is, is all the stuff that you're unaware of. I don't know why I just did that. I don't know why I just said that. All the stuff you say when you're drunk that comes out of nowhere, that's your shadow. Like in nature, shadows are created when light is blocked. Psychological shadows are created when awareness is blocked. It's not that weird and woo and esoteric. It's just you're, you're not aware. So a shadow snack is a way to in a safe way, sort of play with this content and all of the like murder shows and crime shows. And I, I'm not talking true crime. I'm talking like fictional stuff. There's a reason people gravitate towards that. And one of the reasons is one of the biggest shadows is that there's a part of us that delights in the misfortune of others, that whole like Shodan fraud thing. And that's not nice. We're supposed to be good people. We're not supposed to want to watch that. Nevertheless, those shows are always top ranks and there's a billion of them being cranked out so a shadow snack would be something like consciously letting yourself watch that and be like yeah there's a part of me that like enjoys this okay no shame a shadow snack could be going to a rage room and beating stuff up a shadow snack is anywhere you are safely letting the icky parts of yourself that we all have that we all know exist come out and play because if you don't do that they're going to come out sideways in the form of addictions, compulsions, saying things that you shouldn't say, even though we know you actually mean them and there's a kernel of truth in them. So shadow snacks are a way to safely sort of funnel some of those more unacceptable thoughts, feelings, impulses. And the mental health world calls those intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. I get that they're disturbing, but we all have them. That's not pathology. That's not we all have them. We all think weird things. If I could listen to your talk and your thoughts, <laughs> we would all be like, what the actual hell is wrong with you? <laughs> I feel so seen. <laughs> but I'm glad everyone else thinks weird things too. Everyone has them. Everybody has Thank them. God. Mm -hmm. Thank God. So you just mentioned micro yeses, which is one of my favorite concepts from the book. And a man and I work with, and I'm sure you do too, Brett, work with a lot of people with 
big dreams, high achievers, folks who want to start their own business or, you know, move up the ladder in their company or anywhere in between, right? But to get from A to Z is often a really big leap. So how would you suggest high achievers, ambitious people in those types of situations leverage micro yeses to get to where they want to go, even if it's really far away from where they are now? I love that question. And if you're a high achiever who has already achieved, your micro yeses are going to be so you can learn to enjoy what you have built. And if you're in the stages of building, your micro yeses are going to be to help you get to the level of achievement that you want. So they work even if you're already, quote, there, and it works even if you're on your way there. And people argue with this idea of the micro yes because they either don't know or forget that our brains and our nervous systems dictate the pace. And so any big step, even if it's a good big step, is going to register in your brain as dangerous because our brains don't like change. They're wired for pattern recognition and habit and autopilot and steady state. And so your brain's going to go into freeze if you try to go from A to C. Your brain might go into freeze if you try to go from A to B. So working with your physiology means you go from A to A.1. And people don't like that because they think it means there's something wrong with them. But then I get out my whiteboard and I get out my brain chart and it's like, this is what's happening in your amygdala when this is happening. Therefore, a micro yes is a science-based way to keep moving. And people will say, well, how am I going to get anywhere if I'm doing these micro steps? A hell of a lot faster than if you're spinning in freeze and rumination and shame. Because micro yes is compound. You're not going to micro yes the entire process. You're going to micro yes the first two miles and then you'll be up and running. I love that. And I love that you get out charts and whiteboards and explain things with science because it's such a unique part of what you offer to the world. Um, so, you know, when, when you and I first met, we actually met at a lunch mm -hmm. a few weeks before the Spain retreat. Right. And I, I remember I had recently left a job. I was ruminating on what I wanted to do next. And I was nervous to tell, to share that with people. And you came up to me and you said, congratulations, you are being a human. And I don't think I've ever felt so seen in my life as that moment. And, you know, for, for one thing I would love to ask you is what is something that most of us get wrong about being a human and why is our perception skewed in that way? Oh, it's, it's such a beautiful question. I mean, I could go down any number of tangents with that, but I think the thing that people get wrong about being a human is that if you dig underneath, you won't find anything worth examining. So I think people, a lot of people, not everyone, are genuinely concerned that apart from the things that we do, from the masks that we wear, from the roles that we play, if we do the self-exploration excavation, we're going to come up with nothing. And I've sat with people for thousands of hours over a decade. At the center of this journey into yourself, you're going to find something absolutely spectacular. And I think people really doubt that there'll be anything worth finding. So why bother? And there's, you know, humans do bad things, no doubt. 
And if you're sitting there and you do the self-exploration, if you have the ability, the choice, the resources, you're going to find something absolutely magnificent waiting for you underneath the muck. And that's a really important thing to know. I didn't believe it. I would have smacked you in the face if you said that to me 10 years ago. But I do think that people get wrong about humaning. Not that humans are basically good because that's so reductive and simple, but that there's something worth exploring and doing all this work for. Like regardless of where you are or how far down the rabbit hole you are or how many patterns you could be sick. I have clients in their 70s who are just now starting the work. And I have so much respect for that. Wow. It's never too late. No. Oh, gosh. I like got a little misty when you were saying that. I think, you know, um, Britt, you uh, have this real belief in magic that, you know, Rebecca and I share, right? It's like when you get past the parts that are hard, the parts that are like ugly, it, that's what's there, right? Like it, whether we're good or <laughs> complex, right? There's just, there's just magic. There's magic and there's tenderness and, oh, all right, I'm recovered. So <laughs> <laughs> what is next for Brit Frank? What can we expect? What's coming? What should we be excited for? Well, as the two of you know, because you have helped support me and feed me oxygen when I have panicked my way through it is I have another book coming out in the manuscripts. Thank you. Manuscripts almost done. I will be submitting it shortly and it'll be out summer of 24. And I'm so excited for that. That has been really, really fun. It's more work-based and exercise and task-based. So it's kind of everything in the science of stuck, but distilled down even further with really practical, like here's stuff you can do. And I get super pissed off when uh, when books give me long exercises and uh, so I don't do them. So I wrote this one for people who look at the end of a chapter and go, no, uh, uh-uh, not me. I think that's this everyone. book is for that. Yep. <laughs> and we will definitely be pulling from this. And if you are our client, you can probably expect from some exercises from Brit's <laughs> book. Absolutely. All right. So we have three quick rapid fire questions that we ask every guest. First one is your best tip for working smart. Don't lie to yourself. Mm. Best tip for working happy. Don't lie to yourself. <laughs> I love you. And Tip where, Brit, Frank. <laughs> where can our listeners find you? <laughs> I'm going to, with like 30 seconds, just expound. You can't work smart and efficient if you're lying to yourself. Like, I'm going to do the thing tomorrow and I'll, I'm going to do it. It's mm-hmm. like, no, you're not. So just be honest with yourself. And then we can get to what are you willing to do? And that is when you do the things and the micro yeses and you get working. So don't lie to yourself. How to work happy. If you lie to yourself about what you're sad about, you're never going to get through it and get to happy. So if you're sad, if you're upset, if you're doing comparison, whatever, just be honest about it. Like, yeah. I'm not okay. I am not okay. Great. We can work with that. If I'm fine, everything is fine. You're never going to get to happy. So don't lie to yourself on both of those. You can find me on Instagram at Brit Frank and my website is www.scienceofstuck.com and you can buy my book wherever books are sold. (laughs) And everyone go out and buy Brit's book, Science of Stuck, and we cannot wait for your second book to come out. And follow Brit on Instagram. Like you mentioned earlier, you give so much amazing, relevant, helpful, actionable, free content on your Instagram page. So if you're someone who wants, who, you know, what Brit said resonated with you and you want more right away, go give Brit a follow. Brit, thank you so much for joining us today. It is always a pleasure to chat with you. You have boundless wisdom to share. I know that we could go on, but I also know that you have a manuscript due on Monday. So (laughs) we 
love you so much. You are the best. Thank you for giving us this hour of your time. And I cannot wait for everyone to listen and benefit from everything that you shared. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate, Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate, Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate, Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com www.fullplatefullcup.com